time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Are you sure you want to think about it? No, Cameron, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> Welcome back to a little game I like to play called How Much Prep Has Ray Done This Week? <laughs> minutes and minutes and minutes. Yes, we will yes. find out. Yeah, we'll find out in about an hour. When he gets oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, oh shit! I, I've run out of notes, and we're only I thought halfway we were through. Of Alexander the Great's life, man. I'm 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 off by a couple thousand years. I do want to say this: I have done enough research, uh, air quotes, research to know that these next two episodes will have more one-liners and more zingers than a a Rodney Dangerfield act. I mean, these you're going to hear some hilariously harsh stuff coming from Moss the Boss, and I'm absolutely here for it. And you don't even have you don't even know half the stuff no, I've got I, to talk I don't, about. I, I don't even know of, half the stuff that I've no. got to talk about. But you're right. Point. Yeah, Maybe. I like his shirt. Ray's wearing a Star Wars Rogue a, One. I don't know if I should say today. this because it's being recorded. It's a Chinese knockoff, completely illegal. Um, if you don't ask any questions, hmm. you get really cool stuff. Like your anyway. Like your your next wife. <laughs> you leave Sin Ling alone. I will not have her name besmirched. <laughs> My, my one of my sons is dating a ch- Chinese girlfriend, nice. so yeah, it's oh, all good. God. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine. Just, I just found out yesterday she's been fired from uh, her TV show um, Bel Air. Right. Uh, they've decided to write her character out, so that oh, sucks for her. Well, that's not, it. Sucks, but it's not the worst news. Um, her and your son are probably going to be grilled by Senator Cotton, asking numerous questions about their nationality. Um, I don't know if you caught that on the news, but uh, what I a did. fucking idiot. <laughs> Are you a member of the Chinese Communist Party? No, no I'm from fucking Singapore. How long have no, you been a member? No, you're not understanding my question. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been a member? Fucking McCarthyism, man. It's crazy. Anyway, people don't yeah, care about that. Cold, Cold War, War 255 yes. we're recording yes, today. 255. Um, still Operation Ajax uh, in... Tehran, not Baghdad, as Ray suggested to me earlier in the week. Are we still talking about Baghdad? I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna no. do what I want to do. That's the other <laughs> show. <laughs> Fine, Renaissance show where we've been in Baghdad. This one we're in right. Tehran. Deep. Next yeah. door. Oh, Next door. So I was close. Do I get credit for um, that? No. Yes, oh, you do God. actually. Yeah, yeah. So in our last episode, July fifteenth, nineteen fifty-one, President Truman. Yes. President Truman decided that um, the situation in Iran wasn't fucked up enough, so the Americans should get involved. <laughs> He's not wrong. uppity a little bit more. He sends um, uh, the, the, the greatest stud in the yes. world at the time, Avril Harriman yes. of Harriman, Harriman and Harriman, <laughs> To Tehran, and as we said, when he arrived, there was thousands of people cheering, chanting <laughs> "Death to Harriman." Juxtapose that when Grady um, came, and I'm trying to remember seeing ambassador. I'm trying to remember when Grady came. People are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah!" But now it's literally death to Harriman because the um, 
Iranians and you really can't blame them. I don't think they trust anybody not of their kind. I mean, they've been screwed over by a lot of different people that they just don't trust. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. Did I mention last time OSS-117? OSS-117. I don't think so. Yeah. I've mentioned him somewhere recently. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, there's a series of films, French spy films. Oh. Sati- spoof spy films called OSS-117. Oh, yeah. Sounds familiar now. I think I've told you about these before. I've been telling you to watch it for ages and you don't because you never you listen to anything over Nobody time. tells Ray what to do. Joey doesn't share food. Yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. No one, no one <laughs> no can get puts Ray in the corner. Um, <laughs> they're based on a series of French uh, novels which predate James Bond. Right. Uh, but they're about uh, a spy. Mm-hmm. His code is OSS-117. Um, but then Jean Dujardin Ooh. has starred in a series of films. The you know Jean Dujardin, the the coolest uh, actor working on the planet today. Right? You did you ever see The Artist? We've talked about this before. He was in The yeah. Artist, 2011 Hollywood. Well, not Hollywood, but film that I think he won an Academy Award for. Silent movie. Nice. Where he plays a silent movie star. This guy. So in OSS one one seven films, he basically plays. Sean Connery. He does a Sean Connery impersonation. That's all I got. Yeah. (laughs) But in French. Um, But it's like, he's like a, he's a 60s era um, spy who's misogynistic and racist. That's how we want. And, but thinks he's cool and thinks he's a lover, but he's a bad lover and all the women can't stand (laughs) him. But there's, one of the series of the films I watched last year, he goes to Africa. Right. It's called OSS from Africa with Love. <laughs> he, he he goes he goes to Africa to help uh, a, a French supported African dictator win a uh, corrupt election. Sure. And when he arrives, he's being tra- he's traveling through the streets in an open convertible. Oh shit! And all these people are lined the streets because they've been told to, and the soldiers holding guns at them. And he's he's got this. <laughs> He's like, hey, the Queen's way, hey, the Queen's yeah, way. Hello, everyone, like, hello, yeah, uh, bonjour. He, he thinks everyone loves him, but they're all, you know, got guns pointed at them because the president uh, is making them perception. Look. Anyway, yes, that was Avril Harriman's uh, yes. arrival in Tehran. Chaotic shit show. Uh, his limo dodging angry mobs. <laughs> His dinner being serenaded by the sound of uh, gunfire, <laughs> sweet sounds of gunfire in the background. That was an AK-47. The city yes. was a com- the city was a complete mess yeah. by midnight with over twenty dead and two hundred wounded. Yes, and just just the police and the soldiers now, clashing with people again who are not happy. Sorry, and remind uh, people who can't remember from the last episode, Ray, yeah. because you've got a memory like a steel trap, like a, as we all know. A sieve, but go ahead. Who was behind the uh, Harriman protests on his arrival? Uh, who was behind that? Um, was it the yeah. interior minister or does he just get the blame is my question to you. So I, I don't know who's behind the pro. Is it the British? I have no idea. Yes, it was the uh, Communist Party. Oh, that's not good. Who were being supported by the British. Right. Because they didn't want the Americans yeah. Getting involved in uh, with if it, if it wasn't to show complete support for the British side, right? So the media pointed the media though pointed fingers at the Shah, yeah, 
and General Faziola Zahedi, the Minister of the Interior, mm-hmm. accusing them of stirring the pot. Right. And so Moss the boss <laughs> immediately sacked Zahedi. Because he can. That will, well, yeah, for the moment he can. Right. But as we know. Not, not for long. If you've read ahead. Right. I haven't even read yeah. this. But see. The, that will. Yeah. That will, that will come back but, to uh, haunt him. But the thing is, is that yeah. So so supposedly the newspapers were saying that they're they're they they caused this trouble on purpose because they want Harriman to think that Iran's in total chaos. Well, it is. You don't actually have to fake it. You don't have to generate anything. You've got the British. You got the oil company, and you've got Mossadegh going. You know, they're going at each other. There is chaos, and there is something to be legitimately concerned about. So again, I don't know if that was necessary. There's a lot of finger pointing, but the point is, on Harriman's very first night, he's like, "Okay, whatever's going on, this shit is for real," and he knows he's got a job to do. Um, Harriman's mission, obviously, is, as we said last time you know, supposedly to try and negotiate some diplomatic resolution um, between the the Iranians and the British, but also, as we suspect, Mm -hmm. to try and uh, figure out how the Americans get involved in this. I've got an an article Mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, Sydney Daily Telegraph. Mm. This is dated July 18th, 1951. Right. He'll need all his charm to curb the Persians, is the headline. William Avril Harriman, President Truman's 60 years old special assistant, Mm -hmm. who is now mediating in Tehran between the Persian government and the Anglo-Iranian oil company, is one of the most interesting personalities in American politics. Mm -hmm. This tall, broad-shouldered, athletic man with slightly graying hair, grayish blue eyes, the elegant quiet manners of an aristocratic cosmopolitan. Which he was. And the wealth of an Indian prince is the embodiment of the best type that modern America has produced. Uh, could your lips be further up the anus? Am I, what, what, what am I missing here? Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, this was uh, written by Dr. Emery Barks, according to a very fancy... Um, uh, you know, headline right. on this thing. Right. Um, now, when you look up who this guy was, yeah. according to the Australian Dictionary of Biography, oh. Demery <laughs> Barks, 1905 to 1990, journalist, was born Imre Bruchsteiner. Okay. In 1905 in Budapest. Right. Uh, then he married his childhood playmate, <laughs> Eva Vika Samogi. Right. In 1933, he changed his name from Bruchsteiner to Barks to conceal his Jewish origins. Typical. He went on to become a journalist, uh, ended up working for Australian news organisations as a freelance journalist for a while. Then he joined the ABC mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, but he's really sucking up to this guy here. Yeah, yeah. sucking him hard. He's, you know, he's changed his name, as I said, to Emery Barks, but in the Daily Telegraph, where he was now writing in the early 50s, he changed his name, his pen name, to Esmond Barclay. Oh, um, Yeah, it sounds, sounds less Jewish. Oh, oh, good old Esmond Barclay. <laughs> but it's Dr. Emery Barks. Dr. Emery Barks, was that mind real? you. Right, okay. 
no, I don't think so. Okay. No, I think he just threw that in there. Why not? Yeah. Changed his first name to Doctor. It's not actually a. <laughs> it's not actually a qualification. Hi. Just changed his Hi, name. I'm Admiral Harris. Doctor. Yes, it's nice to meet you. Mm. That's my name. Mm. He uh, then went to write for the Bulletin magazine. Mm. Uh, sadly, died in 1990, uh, which was slightly before the Bulletin had me on their front cover in 2005, and then promptly went broke a couple of months later, <laughs> which I take no responsibility for. Um, Why am I working? My son with Taylor, you? who's in right, go ahead, go ahead. My son Taylor, who's in LA at the moment, was telling me last night that the next time a journalist does a story on him, <laughs> he's going to get them to recreate the cover photo of me from the Bulletin from 2005 <laughs> nice. just for shits and giggles. Why not? Um, <laughs> anyway, getting back to uh, Dr. Emery Barks's, uh, uh bio, right. whatever, yeah. ass-kissing of Arryman, <laughs> which I find fascinating. Yeah. Film actress Madeline Car- Carroll once described him as one of the ten best-looking Americans. She said Harriman had the most handsome head of all of them. Oh, yeah. And as his career has proved, that handsome head holds a good brain. Yes, it does. Harriman is a progressive, deeply conscious of social responsibilities at home and abroad. But he's a practical man, not a woolly-minded, theoretical humanitarian. Right. He belongs to that new American elite who realised that national greatness involves responsibilities and who want to live up to them. Harriman wants his country to lead the Western world in its struggle to develop democracy. Wow. Harriman had to battle to get into American politics. Australians, themselves eternally suspicious of the boy born with a silver spoon in his mouth, will readily understand why. Right. Avril Harriman's father, Edward Henry Harriman, was the son of a poor parson. He was one of those fabulous Wall Street buccaneers who started penniless and finished a multimillionaire. Edward Henry Harriman began his career as a bank messenger at 15. When he died, he left to his children the largest railway system in the United States, plus a fortune estimated at 35 million pounds. That's not bad. Anyway, this story is just um, kind of really incredible. Like the amount of sort of ass-kissing to Americans that was going on in Australia in the early 50s is really remarkable to me. Not that it's much different today. I mean, every time any senior... American, you know, political representative comes to this country, they're literally Australian prime ministers and government ministers literally, yeah, get down and, you know, rim their assholes. It's really quite sad. Would you like to unzip, sir, or shall I? Yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyway, then it says in Tehran, it finishes with in Tehran, Harriman will face one of the toughest tasks of his life. He will need all his shrewdness, personal charm, knowledge, and diplomacy to curb the crazy nationalism oh. of Persia's politicians. Oh, so American the crazy nationalism. So America can beat our chest and say, um, "What was that thing where we took all the land?" <sighs> Fuck. Anyway, so America can beat our chest. We can take all the land from a. Uh, from uh, the Native Americans and the Mexicans, and it's okay when we do it, but when someone else does it, it's it's tacky, it's vile, it's it's tray gauche, but it's okay when when white people, when the whitey does it. You took over the entire country from the British uh, and to, <laughs> under the excuse of nationalism. Yeah, yeah. 
Fuck. Or tax evasion. Yeah. <laughs> that too. Manifest destiny. Fuck. That's what I was trying to think of. Manifest destiny. Anyway. So no, but you're right. I mean, Harryman. Harryman is brilliant. He is. He is practical. He's not going to worry too much about theory. He's going to say, "Here's a list of problems. Let's knock them out." Mossadegh's a completely different animal. We'll get into that. But my favorite part is, and I don't want to cut you off, but when they meet for the first time, one, they meet in Mossadegh's house. They meet in his bedroom. They meet in his bed. Well, Moss, not Harriman, but 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 Moss, not unlike Churchill, is all propped up on his pillows, uh, and Harriman comes in, and takes a seat, and I guess the negotiations will begin. I had more news Sorry, articles please. about Harriman from the time. Nah, it's okay. all right. I, I could get lost reading them because I've got ones from England, ones from America. It's all fascinating to see how this meeting is being covered. But um, yeah, he goes to meet with Mossadegh, and it's classic Moss the yes, boss. Yes, classic. Yes. Classic theater. <laughs> he starts out going, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Look, I hope that the U.S. really is a friend of the oppressed. You know, like you were one day when the British kept trying to tax you for goods and services. And I hope that you're not merely a puppet of the vile British. That's his opening move. That's his opening statement. That's what he says right after hello. No, no. So his, op- his opening move is meeting him lying in bed. Yeah. Yeah, come into my bedroom. <laughs> um, he's draped in a camel hair cloak. Yeah, he is. He's looking sick. He's looking weak. Yeah. He's looking old. He's like frail. Uh, I'm barely here. <laughs> could you speak up? Yeah, I'm barely alive. Sp- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think these protest too. Much. Um, yeah. Yeah, he like he's he he knows how to play to the gallery, right. Mossadegh. Yes. He he's done this- knows how to. Yes, he's done this. He's done this, all, he's done this all his life. Yes, yeah, yeah. He knows, and he's a, he's a, he's a he's a jumble of contradictions. On one hand, he has deep respect for British institutions, right? The British system of government, culture. Um, yeah, history, the culture, the constitutional tradition. Yeah. He wants to see Iran adopt a lot of the the constitutional traditions of of Britain, the democratic tradition of Britain, but at the same time. Yeah. Completely loathes its government and its imperial history, its colonialism. Right. Which, you know, isn't that different from how I and many people like me perceive the British and, and the Americans. Yeah, there's right? a lot to offer. Love American. Yeah. So I always say, love American culture. Right. Love uh, American films, uh, American books, uh, American music. Despise America's imperialism. Exactly. Uh, and think it's a tragedy for the world for the last hundred years and, and it continuing today. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that doesn't affect my view of Americans or American culture. Right. You know. Right. But for me, what made this funny was as they're having this conversation, Harriman lives currently in London. So he is literally living in the place where this guy's going, they're the vile British. And like you said, I like their culture, but I don't like what they what their government does with their army and their navy or whatever. And so um, so Harryman is like, you know, Harryman knows what he's doing. He's been doing this for decades. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There are some very bad British. There's some good ones too, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. There's some bad British. To that, Moss says, oh, you don't know them. You don't know them. So he won't even concede that there might possibly be some good Brits. So he's he's staking his claim right out from the gate. Now, one thing that they had in common, Harriman yeah. and Mossadegh, was they liked the ladies. Um, <laughs> Harriman, 
is married to Marie. But have you seen who her? Who he takes with him. Yeah, have you seen her? Sorry, I, that came out judgy. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> I looked her up. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-mm. Well, Mm-mm. apparently uh, Mossadegh liked her. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he had a thing for frumpy oh, women. Right. <laughs> um, Harriman, on the other hand, was um, fucking Churchill's daughter-in-law, yeah. Pamela Churchill. Yeah. Quite a bit younger than him. Yeah. Um, so they both like the ladies. Uh, that's one of the good reasons he liked living in London. Right. No, before we get too far now, I want to point out that Harriman brought a guy with him. Yes. Guy called Walter J. Levy. Mm-hmm. Did you read up on this guy? No, I'm looking forward to that moment when you can tell me about his background, besides what I know. Levy, yeah. Levy, a uh, really interesting guy. Um, born a German Jew, mm. uh, left Germany sort of when the Nazis came to power. Right. Um, his parents ended up getting killed during the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, he went to England, but then when England entered the war uh, and they started looking quite askew at German nationals. Oh, good point. He, he, he went to New York. Right. But he was an oil expert. Mm-hmm. He'd studied the oil industry when he was in Germany. When he gets to New York, he writes an article about oil that gets published in Fortune magazine. Next, he know, next thing he knows, yeah. knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Wild Bill Donovan. <laughs> At the door. Right. While Bill, oh, Bill gets him to join the OSS. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was an OSS 117, sadly. <laughs> uh, he joins the OSS as their oil expert during World War II. Right. His, his job for the OSS during World War II was to figure out where the Nazis were storing their oil so the Allies could bomb their oil. Yeah. By the way, back before the war, he actually told the, the, the one of the consensus views of the British uh, was that uh, Germany was going to run out of oil. Germany was they weren't going to be able to run a long campaign because they were going to run out of oil. Right, and he was like, "Nah, I don't think I don't think you know right. Germany and oil, man. They've they've got they got their got their ways and yeah, means. They, they got sources. They got their ducks in a row. Um, yeah." So anyway, he he was the oil expert. After the war, mm-hmm. uh, he did a number of things. He worked on the Marshall Plan. He was sort of the oil guy oh, cool. on the Marshall Plan, right? So he's a big. And dude. then he worked for Mobile for a while. Then he set himself up as a freelance oil consultant. Ah, oh. uh, based in New York. And when he died in 1997, wow. the New York Times, in their obit, called him the Dean of Oil Consultants. Oh, I like that. He was like the guy. Right. He was the oil expert in the world. You, any, anyone, every country in the world, basically, when they were trying to figure out their oil situation, yeah. hired this guy. He was the man. Get Levy on the phone. But so he's a yeah. he's a German American Jew, right? Who they take to negotiate with Mossadegh, a Muslim. Yes, but. As we know, uh, you know things between the the Muslims and the Jews. Nineteen fifty one were great. The, there was already well, Israel had been created. Exactly. They'd, they'd occupied and driven out the Palestinians from their own land. Right. Um, Mossadegh 
doesn't seem to have had a problem with Levy, though, apart from the fact that he's, you know, there pushing the yeah. American uh, banner, which is pretty much telling Mossadegh to make peace with the British. Levy, in these meetings, sort of lists off for Mossadegh all of the hurdles. Right. Iran's facing if they try to run the Abadan refinery by themselves. Yeah, that's his job. Yeah. And he's like, look, you got no no people trained to do the job, <laughs> senior administrative technical positions. Right. Even if you somehow pull off a miracle and manage to run it, yeah. you've got no way of taking it to market. Yeah. You don't own any tankers. No, no one's going to sell you any tankers. No one's going to lease you any tankers. Yeah. Um, so all of the royalty payments that you're currently getting, well, we know you're not happy with the amount yeah. of royalty that you get, but you, you're going to get none How of that. Zero. How zero? Which <laughs> it was £10 million in 1950, Yeah. which even though it was nowhere near what they thought they should be getting, right. and it was a relatively small percentage of the profits, yeah. it was still a big chunk of the Iranian treasury. Yes. And when that disappears, the economy, which is already kind of fucked, is going to be doubly fucked. I, absolutely, yes. And DP'd. He's, he's rattling off. And, you know, if your economy's fucked and you lose the oil revenues, that's going to create more political turbulence. Um, could mean that you uh, lose your job, buddy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there could be more riots in the streets. It could turn into, like, Western military intervention. Uh, as we noted, I think in our last episode, the CIA was already, uh, you know, sort of plotting uh, yeah. U.S. military intervention or discussing it as an option. Snooping around. Anyway, yeah. he's rattling all of this off to Mossadegh, as is Harriman. And what's Mossadegh's response to all of these yeah. uh, fears and concerns, right? Yeah, well, what we're going to find out is as we go through this, Harriman is a Westerner, Levy's a Westerner, and they have a certain idea. They certainly have specific ideas about oil. They have uh, ideas about money, like we all all in the West do. And so um, during the first talk, Harriman gets an idea of Moss, and he writes back to Washington, and he goes, look, Mossadegh is completely rigid, and he's obsessed with the idea of eliminating completely British oil company operations, and once more, he wants Britain to have zero influence in his country. So yeah, it's not it's not going anywhere. So Moss, the boss, again, still in his um, what was that coat he was wearing in the bed? I can't remember what you said. It's, it's he's wearing a coat. He's laying camel hair. Camel hair coat. He's laying in the bed like he's about to die. So so they list these very practical, very real world problems, and he goes. I don't care because he's Moss the boss says, look, I don't think you get this foreign intervention is at the root of all of our problems in the first place. That's a, the exact last thing I want is more foreigners in here. And it all started with that dick. I think you call him Alexander the Great. He kind of fucked with us, you know, a couple hundred years ago, whatever. And he kind of, you know, he burnt Persepolis down, you know, 24 centuries ago. So it wasn't good then. It certainly isn't good now. Get the fuck out of our country. We don't care about the oil the way you care about the oil. And that point is going to be slowly but consistently driven home until Harriman finally understands this this older gentleman. Do you remember the story about burning down... Persepolis, I, I just assumed you would go into it. Wasn't Alexander drunk? But he was drunk a lot. I'm yeah. Trying to, <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it was just, I think the, the story from memory was like just a party that got slightly out of control. <laughs> we burnt down the palace. Fuck. I think Alexander stabbed one of his friends through the chest with a spear. Yes. <laughs> I yes. The night. Yeah, he's an angry drunk. Oh. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he was an angry dog. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Um, so Harriman is making all of these arguments with Levy's support. Mossadegh's like, don't care. Uh, let, me, let me address all of your points one at a time. Number one, don't care. Number two, don't care. Number three, don't care. Number four, don't care. Number five, don't care. You know, and I don't give a fuck. Uh, uh, when Levy would make these experts, Mossadegh would make these points, yeah. sorry, Mossadegh would apparently roll his eyes up and just reply in French, too bad for us. Yes. Oh, too bad for us. Oh, no. Don't throw you. me in the briar yes. patch. You know, yeah. Sucks to be us, but I want them out. Yeah. Don't care. He, he was just like taking the piss out of these guys yes. saying, don't care, don't care. <laughs> We're prepared for the consequences yeah. um, because priorities. nothing else matters. Yes, exactly. Well, that's it. Yes. It's priorities. Exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a Number one priority. Like, Go ahead. Mossadegh knew that until they got rid of all foreign intervention in their country, yeah. nothing else mattered. Yeah. Because it's all semantics. You know, it reminds me. Right. It reminds me of these guys that we've talked about on this show and the bullshit filter over the years, you know, your revolutionaries, mm-hmm. your Ho Chi Minh, yeah. your Fidel Castro, your, well, even like Lenin. Right. Uh, Lenin and, and Stalin focused. and all of these guys. Laser focused. Well, focused, but also the, the, the realisation mm-hmm. that every revolutionary has, particularly if they're fighting wars against foreign intervention, colonialism, imperialism, et cetera, which is like, yes, we understand that if we're going to kick the foreigners out of our country, there's going to be a period of pain. It's going to go ugly. You know, it might be... It might be a few years. It might be a few decades. It might be a generation or two. Yeah. We might have to suffer. I mean, and I think this is, you know, I, I assume this is the same thinking Hamas had on October 7th. Yeah. You know, yes, we've got to do this thing. Yeah. It's going to cause pain. We understand that. People are going to die. We understand that. Children are going to die. Women are going to die. Civilians are going to die. Starve to death. But what's the alternative? Yeah. Yeah, I fucking, I listened to this Sam Harris, uh, some of the Sam Harris podcasts here that I was was cleaning up the kitchen. Right. Saw Sam Harris had a podcast called Five Myths About Israel-Gaza Conflict. Oh, I thought, all right, I'll listen to it. And, oh, like just the cognitive <laughs> uh, bias that Sam Harris has on this topic right. is astounding. Like I've got a lot of respect for Sam and I agree with him on a lot of stuff, particularly the free will stuff, obviously. Right. But when it comes to Muslims, he's got this massive cognitive black hole, yeah. which is astounding. Like his first like um, myth, I guess, that he's talking about mm-hmm. Is that um, there's a peace? There's a way of peaceful res- revolution. Uh, sorry, peaceful resolution. Right. He says, like, um, what is Israel to do here? There is no peaceful way to negotiate with Hamas. Hamas, you know, want to see the destruction of Israel. So there is no. Alter- He's basically saying Israel has no alternative but to act violently towards. Palestine, because they've been left with no alternative. There's no peaceful diplomatic resolution to this. But never does he point out that the same is true for the Palestinians. Exactly. Good point. 
he doesn't even see yeah. th- if he does see that at the other side of the coin, he never acknowledges it right. out loud Which tells in this argument. Anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. they're the victims. Like, they are literally and you're saying don't fight back? Fuck you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, like whilst I agree with that point mm-hmm. to to a point that you know Israel, unless Israel's willing to completely wind back their borders, right. significantly divide the country. There's no, yeah, yeah go for a two state solution where the, the Palestinians get m- m- more, if not most, of the land, right? Which the Israelis are never willing happen. to do, and, never happen, and, and how that would happen is still head scratcher, right? Um, you have to acknowledge you have you, you can't make that argument without acknowledge that the Palestinians are the ones that have been occupied for <laughs> seventy odd years, right? And they feel that there's no well, some of them anyway. Hamas certainly feel that there is no path forward that doesn't involve violence and terrorism. Yes. Um, anyway, the yeah. fact that he doesn't even acknowledge that out loud is just like an indication that he is completely cognitively right. blind on this issue. Anyway, but but you make back to Mosul. You make a good point because it's everyone's perceptions that that drive their ideas, that drive their agendas. And so, for example, um, Harriman. And Levy are, are Westerners. They're like, at the end of the day, they're like, yes, but think of the money. That's kind of, it's it for them. And that's what it would be for us. It's like, okay, Cam, I know you're not going to like this. I'm going to put in, I want I want you to do a podcast, and I, but I'm going to put ads in there and all the ads you're going to completely 100% disagree with, but I'm going to pay you a million dollars a year. The average Westerner will go, I, yes, I wouldn't like that, but I'll fucking take that deal in a second. Whereas, whereas we just said, Masadet's like, I've got a higher, not a higher calling, but a higher goal. I literally want all those people who have been causing us trouble for over a century out. So, yes, he would like the money. He would like the oil. And eventually they know they'll get it because it's in their fucking ground. But right now he's got to play the game of getting all the whiteies out of his country. And that's his obsession. And it doesn't matter what price they have to pay. Exactly, They're willing to pay whatever price which, they have to pay the, to get. Yeah, the Westerners don't get that. They do not get paying the price. Yeah, yeah. Especially to rich yeah. white guys. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you would think the Americans who, who you know, uh, uh, sort of have this religious uh, feeling about your own American revolution against the British right. would understand yeah. that. There was a price paid. Too far in the past. Uh, Too far in the past. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. That's my my guess. Yeah. Um, Harriman wrote that Mossadegh, Dr. Mossadegh had learned to take one step forward <laughs> in order to take two backwards. <laughs> but actually, that wasn't written by uh, Harriman. That was written by his interpreter of these sessions, Vernon Walters. Yes. Now, that name sounded familiar to me. Uh do you know who Vernon Walters was? He was obviously named after George Washington's home estate, Mount Vernon. No, um, it does sound familiar, but I, I he's, he speaks a, a, a few languages, but I can't remember who he is. Bring me up to speed. Yeah, he spoke uh, French, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese, God. as well as English. Dang. Also spoke German. Right. Um, but he often used to joke that he spoke it fluently but inaccurately. Um, when when he gave a simultaneous translation of a speech by Richard Nixon uh, in France, Charles de Gaulle said to Nixon, you gave a magnificent speech but your interpreter was eloquent. Ah. 
he ended up being deputy director of the CIA. Not bad. So uh, an ambassador to Germany. So good for him. An ambassador to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, he also wrote at the time, uh, after a day's discussion, Mr. Harriman would bring Mr. Mossadegh to a certain position. Right. The next day when we returned to renew the discussion, not only was Mossadegh not at the position (laughs) where he was at the end of the previous day, he wasn't even at the position where he had been at the day before (laughs) that. He was somewhere back around the middle of the day before <laughs> yesterday. I'm sorry. Did I, did I say that? I, I don't remember saying that. Did I agree to that? I'm sorry. We're going to have to start over. In my frailty and my, I'm in my bed and my weird coat, whatever. I, 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 could we just start over? I mean, but these Westerners are like points A, B, and C. Let's knock out solutions and move on. No, he's like, but I don't know. Let's start over. So these guys have got to be infuriated. You know yeah, go ahead. He reminds me of Stalin at Yalta. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. let's just drag yeah, this thing out as long it. as possible. We'll figure it because, out. We're comrades. Yeah. yeah it'll be okay. Well, I think it's 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 a great negotiating tactic. Yes. Like when the time pressure, when other people are feeling the time pressure, yes. in this case the British and the Americans yeah. who want the oil, who need the oil, yes. who are, their economies are desperate for the oil, and he's not worried. Right. So he's like... Uh, you need me. I, I got all day, yeah, man. Yeah. I, I can do yeah. this for as long as I and, want. Because yeah. it's a negotiating tactic. Exactly. You figure that the longer you drag it out, the more desperate they'll become and the, the better the terms you'll yeah. be able to get. Didn't really play out that way but for Mossadegh. But that's what he's doing here. Just, uh, yeah. yeah, old week. Oh, I can't remember what were we said that really. It's not <laughs> we should write line. this. I, I'm not sure. We should write this down somewhere. <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> But there are these stories. Mossadegh was Yoda in uh, episode two. Dagobah. No, 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 no. no. He's Yoda when he goes to battle Count Dooku. You remember Yoda walks in to the cave or wherever they are and he's on his cane and he's hobbling. Uh, 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 Ah, Dooku, I see. My old Padawan. My old apprentice. Mm. And then as soon as... They go to battle. He drops the cane, it down, whips, out whips it out the lightsaber and starts <laughs> bouncing all over the fucking walls. Yeah. And then when he finishes that, he's back down, he's canes like- out again. <laughs> oh, old man I am. 900 years. Look this good when 900 years old you are, you will not. Mm. Did like three somersaults, flipped in the air, bounced. He was fucking Spider-Man at that point. But then he picks up again yeah. and he goes, And that was Mossadegh. Yes. Exactly. There are all these stories of Mossadegh would, you know, walk the streets hobbling on a cane. Yes. Then he'd get to wherever he was going and then forget he had a cane. He'd drop it somewhere and he'd be, like, doing jigs yeah. in the fucking room. Like, it was all an act with Mossadegh yes. in order to create yeah. some political theatre. Right. So, anyway, yeah. um, that's... Uh, uh, Vernon Walter, not to be confused with Walter Levy. Lots of Walters Too going many, on yeah. here. Levy and Walter, yeah. Um, let's see here. The next big issue that Harriman and Mossadegh had fundamentally views on was what was going to happen next. Harriman sees this as a set of technical challenges that need to be overcome. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of compromise. All right, they the British want this, you want that, let's find a place to meet Logical, in the middle. common sense. Mossadegh's like, no, <laughs> you get the fuck, they, everyone gets the fuck out of my country. That's basically right. it. Did I, you know, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
did I mention the 95 to 98 percent of approval rating I've got, the people that are backing me in my country? So when I say get the fuck out, what I'm really saying is my country is saying get the fuck out. And it was, as Walter Levy, the German uh, Jewish oil expert, found out, he went walking the streets one day and just got talking to people on the street. And this is how he later related it. He said, you realize that if the British technicians leave Abadan, you'll have to try to run the industry by yourselves? They said, yes. He said, you realize you will fail to run the industry without the British? They said, yes. <laughs> he said, so Iranian oil will no longer be produced for the world market? They said, yes. <laughs> he said, and if Iranian oil is no longer produced, there'll be no money in the Iranian treasury? They said, Yes. He said, and if you have no money, there will be a financial and economic collapse which will play into the hands of the communists. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you going to do about it? They said, nothing. That's what we want. We want you. We don't care. I'm willing to pay the price. We want you out. Because, again, this has been going on for more than a century. So it's personal at this point. We want you out. And so as the negotiations aren't going well, Harriman... Yeah. Uh, for all of the um, good guy Mm -hmm. uh, propaganda that was being spread about him in the foreign press, decides to play the Shah card. He goes to the Shah and he says, look. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) you got to do something about Mossadegh. You got to. We're getting nowhere. Right. But the Shah told him straight up, (laughs) dude, I got nothing. I can't. Um, If I say one thing against nationalism, that would be my head on the wall. Yeah. They shot the last guy, <laughs> the, the, the general. That's right. You remember? Yes. That was only like eight, six months ago. They shot that them. fucking guy in the street. Oh, so like, <laughs> fuck you. I'm not. Fuck you. This and is the plane between, you wrote in. My name is Paul, and this is between y'all. I'm the Shah. I don't need to get involved. This is what Harriman found out. The Shah might have been a higher power, but the people are the highest power. And he's like, I ain't fucking with those crazy people. Uh I can't help you. But then comes my favorite part. I don't want to jump too far ahead about Harriman and the reporters, if you want to cover that or whatever, but this is no, my absolute... You can do okay, that. So this is my tell, that, tell that story. So, he, so Harriman doesn't get anywhere with the Shaw. He's like, I got I to gotta shake this loose. I've got to break the logjam. I've got to build some momentum, and I need some help. So what Harriman does is he gathers a bunch of reporters together, and he says, look, people... And I certainly hope you can understand me. Iran is in a crisis, and we need to meet this crisis. You need to meet this crisis with reason as well as enthusiasm. To wit, one of the reporters jumped up and shouted, we and the Iranian people all support Premier Mossadegh and oil nationalization. They all got up. They all cheered. They all raised their hands. And then they all marched out, still cheering. And suddenly Harriman is sitting in a room of loan going, what the f- Fuck just happened. Remember that 95, <laughs> 95% popularity I was talking about? Yeah, it's still in effect. So even this, I don't know what you want, you want to call it a Hail Mary, falls flat for Harriman. Yeah, like the level of popular support that um, Mossadegh and oil nationalization had mm-hmm. was not to be taken lightly. I mean, the people. We're really sick of this. Yes, generationally. I think there is a perception uh, in some places today in the in the West that this was just Mossadegh. Yes, and he was crazy. No, the people really, really wanted this. Yeah. So next card Harriman <laughs> tries to play is turning to the Ayatollah. Damn right. 
Now, as we've said before, this wasn't the Ayatollah Khomeini yet. He was around, but he was still a young man. Yes. This is the Ayatollah Kashani. Mm-hmm. Who's popular. Who had yeah. become, yes, he'd become one of the most popular and powerful figures in Iran at that stage. So imagine this. Mm-hmm. You've got Blue Blood Harriman, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, yes. one of the richest m- uh, members of the American elite. Oh, yeah, Silver Spoon. A, a skull and bones man from Yale. Yeah. A skier, polo player, high society, fucking Winston Churchill's <laughs> daughter-in-law, Pamela Churchill. And you have Kashani I... <laughs> wearing a turban. Yeah. He had fought in the war against the British. Oh, yes. Um, had been imprisoned by them. Yes. Sent into exile by the Shah. Long black beard, yeah. your classic ayatollah looking dude. <laughs> Keeping it simple. Spent most of his days in a little carpeted room praying. Right. And then every now and again he'd go out and, and give a speech yeah. to an adoring crowd of thousands of followers. Absolutely. Um, and each time his speech was a denunciation of imperialism. Right. Um, so Harriman arrives at Kashani's door. Yes. And is taken into this small little dark room where the Ayatollah is sitting. Harriman takes off his shoes, sits on the carpet, says a few words about his respect for the Ayatollah, yeah. saying that he hoped the oil crisis could be resolved and, Absolutely. you know, maybe Kashani could say a few things to, to grease the wheels. Yeah, master the boss, come on. And uh, <laughs> as soon as he said, like, the first couple of sentences, when they're translated, Kashani just basically started abusing the hell out of it. Of which I have parts of the transcript. I don't, I don't know if you were able to find oh, this. Oh, right. So yeah, here's, here's some no. of the phrases that he used. Um, Sikter, which means buzz off or get lost. Ker, which means shut up. Kos Nagu, which means stop the bullshit. Bakoresh means eat this or kiss my ass. Depends on the context. And my favorite is be karam, which means I don't give a fuck. So he probably threw all those together in a beautiful word salad. But basically, the second the idea that he was supposed to talk to Moss the boss and get him to change his mind about helping the British, this man just went to town cussing this elderly, rich, famous statesman out like he was a like he was a turd. I've actually got a recording oh, of the speech that he gave, which I'm going to I'm going to play here. The path of the righteous man and defender is beset on all sides by the inequity of selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the father of lost children. Mm-hmm. And I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious anger who poison and destroy my brothers. And they shall know that I am Chiba, the bodyguard, when I shall lay my vengeance upon them. Damn. Sound familiar? Damn. Yeah, what is it? I can't place it. I can't place it. What is it from? Okay, so let me let me uh, play you the version that you will probably know. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about 
best intentions? <laughs> What's the matter? <laughs> oh, you were finished. Oh, well, allow me to retort. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker, do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. Oh. What? Say what again. <laughs> Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. <laughs> Black corn. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? <laughs> Does he look like oh. a bitch? Then why are you trying to fuck him like a bitch, Brent? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brent. You trying to fuck him. My sense Wallace don't fuck by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. Uh. You read the Bible, Brent. Yes. Well, there's this. Passage, I got memorized. Ezekiel 25:17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. <laughs> Blessed is he who, in the name of charity and goodwill, shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. So, Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson, Tarantino. I was watching this Sonny Chiba film from 1973 i think the other day and it starts with that fucking quote which i'd never realized before so tarantino pretty much lifted the entire quote yeah, do what you got. straight from a sunny the intro to a sunny chiba film <laughs> from the uh, early 70s and put it in the mouth of sam jackson where it belongs and it's pretty much yeah. well it's pretty much the, the i think the speech that made sam jackson super yeah, famous yeah. like it made his career, that speech. Is, do you know if, if there's a copy of Sam Jackson, Samuel Jackson reading the Bible? Because I would pay good money for that. I really, <laughs> really would. By the way, if, if anyone's interested, uh, that is not from the Bible. I mean, I, I, I've looked it up oh, like decades ago. Right. Ezekiel 25, 17, around Ezekiel, there is some very, very vague references ah. that sound something similar to that, but it was completely rewritten for the Sonny Chiba film called The Bodyguard right. in America. It improved. Um, Chiba the Bodyguard, yeah. Anywho, so yes, Kashani uh, just basically tells Harriman <laughs> to go fuck himself. <laughs> he says no self-respecting Iranian would ever meet with the British dogs <sighs> and that the United States had turned itself into Iran's enemy by even suggesting it. As for Iranian oil, it could stay in the ground for all he can. Yeah, fuck it. If Mossadegh yields, his blood will flow like Rasmaras, oh, he said. Good one. The uh, yeah. former prime minister who got shot. Then he asked yeah. Harriman if he'd ever heard of a guy called Major Embry. Right. You want to tell that story? Yeah, I, I'd love to tell that story. But before we do that, do you, don't you think that Mossadegh knows his life wouldn't be worth two freaking cents if he did 
give the British. I mean, yes, he's kind of whipped the people up, but again, they were probably willing to be led. So I think I think Mossadegh knows that he can't. I mean, he's a zealot. Don't get me wrong, but I think he knows his life would be in danger if he if he uh, went that route. So yeah, this guy's not saying anything new. So, anyways, so this guy tells the story. Kashani tells the story. He goes, there once was a major Embry who came to Iran, and somewhere around 1911, he dabbled in oil, which was none of his fucking business, and he aroused the hatred of the people. Well, one day when he's walking in Tehran, Tehran, he gets shot in the street, but he wasn't killed. So some people are rushing him to the hospital. The enraged mob followed him into the hospital, burst into the hospital, and butchered him on the operating table. Do you understand me now? Which Harriman had to say, yeah, I understand you. But Harriman, now Harriman, we mentioned a lot about his past, but he, when he went to Moscow, he visited the Russian front. He was in London when it was being bombed. And so he's seen some shit in his life. He's like, you know, don't, don't try to fucking scare me. I'm not a little child. But the point is, Kashani is like, we play in absolutes here. Do not fuck with us or it will be over for everybody. That's the message he's getting. But Harryman, I don't know if this is wise or not, but he goes, yeah, don't try to scare me. But I'm sure he still has the tone of this Ayatollah. So again, another dead end. So I actually looked up this Major Embry. His yeah. name was actually Robert Embry. Oh, I did I say it wrong? Okay. No, it's uh, in the book that we, we got that from. Yeah. It says Embry. Okay. It was actually Embry. Right. He um, he was the first United States Foreign Service officer to be killed, mm. mm-hmm. murdered in Tehran in 1924, but had a really fascinating life. Right. He was 41 when he was killed. In World War I, in 1915, he enrolled as a volunteer driver in the American Ambulance Field Service, Wow, which was part of the automobile section of the French Army. Right. Hmm. He served in France, 1915 to 1916, where he then transferred to the Army of the Orient in Macedonia, served there until 1917 when the United States finally uh, entered the war when they realised it was probably half over by now, (laughs) so it might be safe to get involved. Most of the work had been done. Um, You're not wrong. He got a bunch of medals for his wartime service there. Uh, the White Rose Croix de Guerre, the Croix de Guerre, the Ambulance Medal, the Field Service Medal, the Medal of Recognition wow. for serving more than six months at the front. One of the longest serving volunteer ambulance drivers in the war. Then uh, he couldn't enlist in the US military because of his age and he'd recently had typhus. So he joined the U.S. Consular Service, and then he gets sent to Russia, Damn. where he arrives in November 17, just as the Russian <laughs> Revolution Fuck. is going on. Right? Wow. Um, when the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the treaty between Germany and Russia was signed, mm-hmm. He moved north in February 18. Then he basically is about to get arrested because he's seen as a, a U.S. spy. Oh, sure. And he gets uh, whisked out of the country with false papers, ends up in Finland. Mm-hmm. Then he's part of the White Army in Finland. Oh, my God. As it's going to war with the Red Army. And, you know, we've talked in the past right. on this show about how the Americans and the British got involved in trying to support the White Army during the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. He was one of those. Um, and then he ends up in... Turkey, he, he got sentenced to death by the Bolsheviks, by the way. Right. 
um, in 1920. Yeah. He he has to uh, get out of Dodge there. He goes to Turkey um, where he's like the U.S. official observer in Angora where modern Turkey's being created in the early 20s. Right. Damn. Uh, but becomes friends with uh, Mustafa Kemal, the first president of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Sort of gets involved in tracking American commercial interests there. Then he gets posted to Tehran. Oh. Uh, he's basically, I think the consul in Tehran uh, had gone on leave. He gets sent there sort of to fill in. Right. He's, he's in. And this is like in um, the early 20s, as we know, a lot of strife going on in Tehran mm-hmm. there against the Shah, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Several outbreaks of violence in Tehran. So on the morning of the 18th of July, 1924, he went into the city to um, check out a story that he'd heard mm-hmm. that a man had lost his sight because he committed sacrilege and then when he pr- when he repented... Sure. He got his eyesight back. That's that sounds right. At least one eye. He thought, yeah, that che- that checks out. <laughs> um, and he took his camera to take some photos. He was a bit of a travel writer, photographer. Right. You know, he's a, he's an American traveling these really exotic That's parts cool. of the world in the early nineteen twenties. Yeah. Um, and he took with him a guy called Melvin Seymour who is described in Wikipedia as an American roustabout. <laughs> the only other person I've ever heard described like that by Wikipedia is you. Yeah, no. So I immediately like the sound of this guy. He was currently serving house arrest at the American consulate. Damn, he's a bad boy. But uh, Embry goes, you look like fun. Let's, Let's go. go. So I'm in charge now. Let's go. They go into the city. Right. Um, somebody, there's, people start shouting at them and accuse them of having poisoned the well. Sure. Because that's in the middle of the bazaar right. in the city. So a mob, they, they, this, they get surrounded by a mob. They, they try to get away. The mob catches up with them. And then they're basically pulled out of their carriage, beaten up by the crowd. Damn. The police intervened and took them to the police hospital and then, as the Ayatollah said, the mob broke into the hospital and uh, beat him to death. Damn. So there was some suspicion, though, that his murder was politically motivated by Reza, (laughs) who wasn't the Shah at this stage. Uh, He was the commander of, you know, one of the brigades. Right. Anyway, so yeah. hours after um, Embry was murdered, Reza um, was uh, using that whole incident to basically escalate his power and make himself sharp. Right. So he he basically said, that, you know, he turned it into, you know, rioting mm-hmm. in the streets. Um, and basically, you know, said, look, the place is out of control. Yeah. Uh, you need to you make need... me prime minister and minister of war. And um, yeah. he used it. So that's one of the reasons it's sort of, it was sort of a convenient. Ah, um, right. 
happening that 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 he used to his political advantage. So anyway, fascinating story about this major Embry. And Kashani tells him the story. And um, you know, as you said, uh uh What's his face? Harriman said, Harriman said, Your Eminence, you must understand that I've been in many dangerous situations in my life and I do not frighten easily. Right. And to to which (laughs) Kashani replied, Oh, well, it was worth a try. (laughs) Is anybody in this country sincere? Uh, You know, one guy's faking near death and this guy, I'm going to scare the shit out of you with a boogeyman. Oh, you weren't afraid? I had to try. My my work (laughs) here is done. Had to give it a crack. (laughs) (laughs) I love this Ayatollah. I like the idea, you know, I kind of imagine like he had like spooky music going on and spooky lighting in his little dark room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Candles. Yeah. Before Harriman arrived, they had lights on, they had a disco ball was going. (laughs) They said the Americans did. Oh, quick, quick. Okay, hide everything. Turn the lights out. Change the mood. Yeah. Yeah. But the yeah. funny thing was, as, as much as Harriman is finding out, um, and he's he's not getting very far, but as, as the ironic thing was that Harriman was not exactly crazy about the British either. And he and it, what shocked him more than anything else was that no major British politician had come to Iran, and we've mentioned this in previous episodes, very few oil executives came. So he's like, wait a minute, you come here, or you, you, you take over their oil, you treat them like shit, you treat them like slaves, and you don't even like pop by every once in a while to at least do the Queen's wave to the people. I mean, give them something. The fact that you're not doing anything, no wonder they're pissed at you. Yeah, he wrote, actually wrote to Dean Asherson in one cable in spite of the fact that the British consider oil interest in Iran their greatest overseas asset, no minister has visited Iran, as far as I can find out, except Churchill and Eden on wartime business. Right. Oil company directors have rarely come. Situation that has developed here is tragic example of absentee management combined with worldwide growth of nationalism undeveloped countries. Exactly. There is no doubt Iranians are ready to make sacrifices in oil income to be rid of what they consider to be British colonial practices. Large groups are in mood to face any consequences to achieve this objective. It is clear that British reporting and recommendations from here have not been realistic, and it seems essential that member of British government find out for himself what is going on here. They don't care. Uh, They do not care. Sorry. Well, I mean, uh, if I was a senior British politician, yeah. I wouldn't want to go there either. No. I'd be scared for my fucking life yeah. if I went there. You know? yeah. I'll send my assistant. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, Harriman finally does get Mossadegh to agree to issue a statement. Yes, saying that he would. Yes. Negotiate with a British envoy if, <laughs> and only if. <laughs> The British agreed to remove the letter M entirely from the British alphabet. He said, but your name starts with the letter M. I know. I don't care. That's, I know. That's, it's fucking crazy, right? That's how crazy I am. You'll have to call me Ossadek from now on. It's fucking great. I love it. I love it. Fuck it with the heads. Hey, I'm Ossadek. I'm the boss of deck. I, I don't know, but nobody, but now this is my opinion. I wanted to ask you, I know we're going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to ask you, 
So your opinion on this, Harriman is harassing, harassing, harassing. He's getting nowhere. Finally, Moss, the boss, says, okay, look, even though I'm like maybe 24 hours from Harriman the harasser. Harriman the harasser. That's what he called him, Harriman the harasser. Even though I'm probably less than 24 hours from death, I think you can see that. Um, do you, In your opinion, do you think maybe Moss knew what the British would reply? Because he says, yes, I'll talk, but here's the stipulation. I'm guessing he knew he would get a no, but then he could he, he could look at Harriman and point and gesture towards the British and go, see, see, this is what I'm dealing with. That's a guess on my part, but it, it makes him look good. It makes the British look like they're the trouble, the, the troublemakers. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, Harriman gets Mossadegh, sorry, to agree that he would negotiate if the British government accepted the principle of nationalization of the oil industry in Iran. Right. So it's you know he will he will negotiate if you just accept the basic principle of nationalization yeah. which as we've mentioned in the past right. um the British foreign minister Ernie Bevan yeah <laughs> had said yeah we're nationalizing everything Left, right, back home yeah. so yeah. it's not that hard a leap to accept the principle exactly. of nationalization the British foreign office replied to Harriman the harasser <laughs> tell him to go fuck himself <laughs> So, so Harriman yeah, yeah. decides to fly to London yeah. himself. Now, keep in mind that he is fucking Churchill's daughter-in-law. Yes. Who he ends up marrying yes. decades Ma- later. Makes so an it's, honest it's, lady it's, ever. Yeah, yeah. But he, and he so lives in London. So he's no stranger. Exactly. Yes, he's no stranger to the senior echelons of the British government. Anyway, flies to London, meets for three hours with the British cabinet. Yes. We're getting somewhere. Right? No. no. <laughs> he's not getting anywhere. To be fair, (laughs) they are somewhat divided on the issue. Some are saying, look, maybe we should send someone to Tehran. Yeah, yeah. The others are saying, fuck fuck the Persians and the horse they rode in on, which, by the way, was a beautiful horse. Persian stallions. Very fuckable. Beautiful. Beautiful horse. (laughs) Sorry, no, you didn't mean that. Sorry. Sorry. My country is coming out. Those dicks. Big dicks. Yeah, that they have. So what does Prime Minister Attlee do. Prime Minister Attlee, now let's remember Labor Prime Minister yes. Attlee. Yes. Labor worker, we, we talked about him fucking 100 <laughs> episodes ago <laughs> uh, after when they had the the conference after the Yalta conference. Yeah. The next big conference, which was the conference where he became prime, he became prime minister in the middle of that conference, right? And he had to replace Churchill. Where was that conference held? Potsdam, Germany. Potsdam. Yeah, yeah. Churchill. I was going to say the Tehran conference. That was a different conference. <laughs> I was thinking of the Tehran <laughs> Churchill conference. Churchill was so. slaughtered in the polls. Uh, the people really yeah. wanted to change. And 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 I know you know this, That's but right. but Attlee was in charge basically of the country during the war while Churchill ran the war. I mean, they were partners. He said, I'll take care of this, but when this shit is over with, we're going to have some serious conversations about socializing some shit. The people found out about that, and they overwhelmingly put his ass in the prime minister's seat. Atlee decides to send a guy to Tehran to meet with Mossadegh. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. He is the, currently, he was the Lord Privy Seal. Good job. Sir Richard Stokes. Right. Now, how many languages did he got... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's going to have to wait. Okay. But I have got some fun stories about Richard Stokes. Maybe we should call him Richard Not Strokes. Not the least of which. Right, right. 
Not the least of which. Yeah. Uh, he was a fascist. Oh. A very proud fascist. Oh. Loved Hitler. <laughs> Loved the Nazis. <laughs> Nazis. Love the Nazis. <laughs> love the fascists. This is a hell of a British government we got going on here. We got some oh, fascist. Oh, I can't wait. Love it. I can't. I, I have to wait fascist. a week. Fascism. Well, yeah. yeah. I have to wait a week for me to tell you the story about <laughs> Lord Privy Seal and not not secret fascist right. anyway, either. Out about. Writing, writing, writing pamphlets, oh. publishing pamphlets saying, you know what, we need more fascism. <laughs> Fascism <laughs> is what's going to make England great again. I know we just had a war. And <laughs> and I'm not talking about, he's not writing it in 1928. He's not writing it in 1932. Anonymously. 19, 1940. <laughs> in the middle of World War II. You know, maybe. He's going, listen, <laughs> Hitler's just a misunderstood genius. What we something. need is fascism. Lots and lots of fascism <laughs> is what we need. I got a cool salute. You're going to love I it. I kid you not. <laughs> anyway, that's next time Fuck. on uh, the Cold War show. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.